We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you, Father, for the great things that you're doing. We yield ourselves to you, Lord, and wait patiently to see the things that you'll do for us, your church, this church body, in these last days. Thank you, Father, that we're surrounded with favor as with the shield. Thank you, Lord, for providing for us financially, physically, spiritually, and in every way. We love you, Father. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good evening, everyone. If you've been with us here recently, um, you're aware that the Lord has kind of dealt with me to look at different people in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, in the difficult times that God would use them. We talked a little bit about Joshua and Joseph. We talked about Daniel and the three Hebrew children. We talked a little bit about David. And then we talked last week about Gideon. Now, in everybody up to Gideon, everybody we looked at had put the Word of God first in their lives in some way or another. Gideon broke the mold, but he was somebody that God talked to and informed, God informed Gideon about who he saw him to be. You may remember when the angel of the Lord greeted Gideon, he said, thou art a mighty man of valor. Well, Gideon didn't think so, and so he had a lot of questions for the Lord, but finally, the Lord told him that he would be with him. And it equipped Gideon for great works. The Lord put it on my heart to go a little bit further in this, along this vein. And so we want to talk just a bit about Samson. Now everybody, I guess, knows the story of Samson. And, well, how do I say this? Samson doesn't seem to hold the same level or measure of, of respect as many of the other people that we talked about. But the fact is, Samson made the hero hall of fame that Paul gives us record of in Hebrews chapter 11. Let me read verse 32 to you. Paul says, and what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak, we don't know who that is, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, we don't know who that is. But notice the same category that Paul by the Holy Ghost puts Samson in. And of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets. Even though Samson made mistakes, those mistakes were not held against him. God still used him. Now I'm going to start in Judges chapter 13, verse 1. Get a little background on Samson and how he came to the place that he was. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them under the hand of the Philistines forty years. And there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and bare not. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold, now thou art barren, and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Now John the Baptist was a Nazarite. The Bible tells us about how he lived in the wilderness and uh, wore a, a, uh, some kind of animal skin for clothing and ate locusts and wild honey. He was dedicated and had dedicated his life not to drink wine or any strong drink. You may remember Jesus said once about John the Baptist that uh, John refused to drink and the Pharisees criticized him for it. Jesus said, I come drinking. I don't make the same restriction that John the Baptist was living by, and you call me a drunkard. Well, Samson was a, was a Nazarite as well. Skip down with me to um, verse 7. The last part of the verse says, For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Notice that. He shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb until the day of his death. Then skip down with me to verse 12. And Manoah said, Now let thy words come to pass. That sounds almost like what uh, Mary said when Gabriel told her about the, the uh, conception of Jesus. She said, Be it unto me, even as thou hast spoken. Manoah and his wife said the same thing. Now skip down with me to the last part of the chapter, verse 24. And the woman bare a son and called his name Samson. And the child grew and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move him at times in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtel. Now go to chapter 14. And Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughter of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and his mother and said, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me to wife. Then his father and his mother said unto him, Is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren? Or among all my people that thou should goest to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said unto his father, Get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. I'm glad we don't have to do it like that nowadays. Verse 4, But his father and his mother knew not that it was of the Lord, that he sought an occasion against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Then went Samson down and his father and his mother to Timnath, and came to the vineyards of Timnath, and behold, a young lion roared against him. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he rent him as he would have rent a kid. I guess that means he grabbed his jaws and just pulled him apart and killed the lion. And he had nothing in his hand, but he told not his father or his mother what he had done. And he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. And after a time he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees and honey in the carcass of the lion. And he took thereof in his hands and went on eating and came to his father and mother and he gave them and they did eat. But he told them not that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. So his father went down unto the woman and Samson made there a feast for so used the young men to do. 
And it came to pass when they saw him that they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said unto them, I now put, will put forth a riddle unto you, if you can certainly declare it unto me within the seven days of thy feast, and find it out, then I will give you 30 sheets and 30 changes of garment. But if you cannot declare it to me, then you shall give me 30 sheets and 30 changes of garments. And they said unto him, Put forth thy riddle, that we may hear it. And he said unto them, Out of the eater came forth meat, and out of the strong came forth sweetness. And they could not in three days expound the riddle. And it came to pass on the seventh day that they said unto Samson's wife, Entice thy husband that he may declare unto us the riddle, lest we burn thee in thy father's house with fire. Have ye called us to take that which we have? Is it not so? And Samson's wife wept before him and said, Thou dost but hate me and lovest me not. Thou hast put forth a riddle unto the children of my people and hast not told it to me. And he said unto her, Behold, I have not told it to my father nor my mother. Why should I tell it to you? And she wept before him seven days while their feast lasted. And it came to pass on the seventh day that he told her because she lay sore upon him. And she told the riddle to the children of her people. Folks, this woman that he's just married is making him miserable day after day after day. And the men of that city said unto him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? And he said unto them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you should not have found out my riddle. I'm not sure what the meaning exactly there is of him calling his new wife a heifer, but you decide for yourself. Verse 19, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Notice how many times the Bible says that about him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, and slew thirty men of them, and took their spoil, and gave change of garments unto them, which expounded the riddle. And his anger was kindled, and he went up to his father's house. But Samson's wife was given to his companion, whom he had used as his friend. Chapter 15. But it came to pass a little while after, in the time of the wheat harvest, that Samson visited his wife with a kid, and he said, I will go to my wife under the chamber, or into the chamber. But her father would not suffer him to go in. And her father said, I verily thought that thou hast utterly hated her, Therefore I gave her to thy companion. Is not her younger sister fairer than she? Take her, I pray thee, instead of her. And Samson said concerning him, Now shall I be more blameless than the Philistines, though I do them a displeasure. And Samson went and caught three hundred foxes, and took firebrands and turned tail to tail, and put a firebrand in the midst of these two tails. Folks, this guy, he operates in a big, big way. He caught three hundred foxes. How long would it take to catch 300 foxes? This guy just seems to make it happen overnight. Here it says he tied their tails together and put a firebrand. That means a torch of some type. And when he had set the brands on fire, he let them go into the standing corn of the Philistines and burn up both the shocks and also the standing corn with the vineyards and olives. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they answered, Sam Samson, the son of uh, in-law of the Timnite because he had taken his wife and given her to his companion and the Philistines came up and burnt her and her father with fire that was what they threatened her with to begin with to expose the meaning of the riddle um, and Samson said unto them though you have done this 
yet will I be avenged of you, and afterward, after that I will cease. And he smote them hip and thigh with a great slaughter, and he went down and dwelt in the top of the rock Edom. Then the Philistines went up and pitched in Judah and spread themselves in Lehi. And the men of Judah said, they're talking to Samson now, why are you come up against us? And they answered, to bind Samson, and we come up to do to him as he has done to us. I'm sorry, that's when they're talking to the, uh, the people of Timnah. Verse 11, then 3,000 men of Judah went up to the top of the rock Edom and said to Samson, Knowest thou not that the Philistines are rulers over us? What is that thou hast done unto us? And he said unto them, As they did unto me, so have I done unto them. And they said unto him, We are come down to bind thee, that we may deliver thee into the hand of the Philistines. And Samson said unto them, Swear unto me that you will not fall upon me yourselves. And they spake unto him, saying, No, but we will bind thee fast and deliver thee into their hand. But surely we will not kill thee. And they, brought him, they bound him with two new cords and brought him up from the rock. And when he came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily on him. Here's that phrase again. The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the cords that were upon his arms became as flax that was burnt with fire. And his bands loosened from off his hands, and he found a new jawbone of an ass and put forth his hand and took it and slew a thousand men therewith. A thousand people. And Samson said, with the jawbone of an ass, heaps upon heaps, with the jaw of an ass have I slain a thousand men. And it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking that he cast away the jawbone out of his hand and called that place something. You figure it out for yourself. And he was sore athirst and called on the Lord and said, Thou hast given this great deliverance into the hand of thy servant. And now I shall die for thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. But God clave a hollow place that was in the jaw and there came out water. And when he had drunk, his spirit came again and he revived. Wherefore he called the name thereof. I don't know how to say that name either. Which is in Lehi unto this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. Chapter 16. Then went Samson to Gaza, and there saw a harlot, and went in unto her. And it was told the Gazites, saying, Samson has come hither. And they compassed him in, and laid wait for him all night in the gate of the city, and were quiet all the night, saying, In the morning when it is day, we shall kill him. And Samson lay till midnight, and arose at midnight, and took the doors of the gate of the city. Apparently they're trying to keep him in until morning light. And then they're planning to kill him then. But Samson lay till midnight and rose at midnight. Saw that the gates were closed. Couldn't get out. So he took the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts. And went away with them. Bar and all. And put them upon his shoulders and carried them up to the top of the hill that is before Hebron. He says carrying off the, the gates of the city. Again and again and again, it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. If you've seen any of the old-timey uh, Samson and Delilah movies and that kind of stuff, they always tried to pick some guy that was all buffed and worked out and stuff like that. I, I don't believe that's how Samson was. When they begin a little bit further in this chapter to try to discover the, the source of his power or his strength, if he was all muscled up, they'd just ask him, where did he work out? But apparently Samson looks like any normal person would. 
But when the Spirit of the Lord comes on him like this, with this supernatural and even miraculous uh, strength, then he's able to do things that no man would ever be able to do. And it came to pass afterward that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up unto her and said unto her, Entice him, and see wherein his great strength lieth, and by what means we may prevail against him, that we may bind him to afflict him, and we will give every one of us 1,100 pieces of silver. And Delilah said to Samson, Tell me, I pray thee, wherein thy great strength lieth, and wherewith thou mightest be bound to afflict thee. And Samson said unto her, If thy bind me with seven green withs, that means straplings or saplings, I guess, that were never dried, then shall I be weak and be as another man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought unto, up to her seven green withs, which had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now there were men lying in wait, abiding with her in the chamber. And she said unto him, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he broke the whist as a, a thread of tow is broken when it touches the fire, so his strength was not known. And Delilah said unto Samson, Behold, thou hast mocked me and told me lies. Now tell me, I pray thee, wherewith thou mightest be bound. And he said unto her, If they bind me fast with new ropes that never were occupied, then shall I be weak and be as another man. Delilah therefore took new ropes and bound him therewith and said unto him, The Philistines be, the Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And there were liars in wait abiding in the chamber, and he brake them from off his arms like a thread. And Delilah said unto Samson, Hitherto thou hast mocked me and told me lies. Tell me wherewith thou mightest be bound. And he said unto her, If thou weavest the seven locks of my head with the web, and she fastened it with the pen and said unto him, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awaked out of his sleep and went away with the pen of the beam and with the web. And she said unto him, How canst thou say I love thee when thine heart is not with me? Thou hast mocked me these three times, and thou hast not told me wherein thy great strength lieth. Seems to me that by, uh, by this time he ought to be catching on. But apparently not. And it came to pass when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him so that his soul was vexed unto death. She's making his life miserable just like the first wife he had. Then he told her all of his heart and said unto her, There has not come a razor upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. If I be shaven, then my strength will go from me, and I shall be weak and be like any other man. And when Delilah saw that he had told her all of his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up this once, for he has showed me all of his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up unto her and brought money in their hand. And she made him sleep upon her knees. And she called for a man, and she caused him to, be shaved, caused him to shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to afflict him, and his strength went from him. And she said, The Philistines are upon thee, Samson. And he awoke out of his sleep and said, I will go out as other times before, as at other times before, and shake myself. And he wist not that the Lord was departed from him. But the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with fetters of brass. And he did grind in the prison house. Howbeit the hair of his head began to grow again after he was shaven. I heard the story of Samson as a Sunday school kid in Southern Baptist Church. And 
I, I can't say that I remember exactly the way that it was taught or the things that were taught about him. But there are parts of the story that would certainly be impressionable upon a young man or a young boy. And so there were very specific ways that the story was taught. I mean, he's, uh, we saw in the previous chapter that he had to carry the gates of the city off. That was magnified, but it didn't say too much about the fact that he had been with a harlot or a prostitute. And there wasn't a whole lot said about um, Delilah other than the fact that she tricked him. And really, that's all the Bible has to tell us or has to say about the subject. But Samson is certainly not a person that's putting the word of God first place in his life. We don't have any record or any information in any way whatsoever, in any form. We don't have any information about his special love for God, his worship of God, or anything along that line. But we do have one thing, and that is he was a Nazarite from his birth until the day of his death. I've always looked at the story of Samson and looked, on, looked upon him as a sinner. But how could he be in the hero hall of fame of faith that Paul was inspired by the Holy Ghost to, to give us and be a sinner? Now, I hope you know what I mean by that term. Certainly nobody could be righteous under the old covenant because Jesus hadn't yet paid the price. But his behavior is such that I wouldn't expect, I don't think most people would expect God to reward or to have the Spirit of the Lord come upon him mightily. But there was really only one command that was given to, to Samson. And that one command was concerning him as being a Nazarite. Specifically, not to cut his hair. Well, he finally got worn down by Delilah and shared the secret. And his hair was shaved off by other people. But he was faithful to what God told him to do. There is a mistake that Samson made, and he made it twice. And that was, Samson wasn't a good judge of who to put his trust in. Proverbs 25, verse 19, I think it is, says, Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a broken tooth or a foot out of joint. Well, that's exactly what he's done. He's put his faith, he's put his trust in two people, two women, that certainly didn't deserve it. And as a result, it altered the course of his life. His eyes were put out. He spent time grinding grain. The great warrior, the great warrior who killed a thousand men with the jawbone of an ass, is now grinding grain with the Philistines, the enemies of Israel. But it tells us that there was a certain day, a feast day, and the Philistines, among the Philistines, and they called for Samson to be shown. Well, he was brought out into the hall, the great hall. And people mocked him, spit on him, and so forth. But it says, Samson said unto the lad that held him by the hand, Suffer me that I may feel the pillars whereupon the house standeth, that I may lean upon them. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And there were upon the roof about 3,000 men and women that beheld while Samson made sport. And Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me. I pray thee only this once, O God, 
that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood and on which it was borne up, of the one with his right hand and of the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all of his might. And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. We know there were 3,000 people upon the roof. We don't know how many people were in the lower chambers. But that must have been a significant number too, perhaps. Then his brethren and all of his house and of his father came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Estaol in the burying place of Manoah his father. And he judged Israel 20 years. There are things that God gives people to do that a battle has to be fought and won and the battle is an internal one I'll remind you of Paul writing to Timothy 2nd Timothy chapter 1 Paul said in verse 6 wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands so he's got a special gift some dispensation of the Holy Ghost that took place or came upon Timothy when Paul laid his hands on him. But then notice verse 7. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Apparently Timothy is afraid to use whatever God has given him that Paul is referencing through the laying on of his hands. This is the internal struggle that takes place in all of us. We see what the Bible says about God being with us. We see what the scripture says about the power of God that's in us. We oftentimes know the work that God has for us to do or wants us to do. But so many people are held back because of the fear. This internal struggle that takes place. And like I said, it takes place in everybody. From the greatest to the least in the kingdom of God. And if we don't overcome that internal struggle, that internal battle, we'll never be able to, to fulfill or to complete what God has for us to do. Let me show you what that internal battle, that internal struggle looks like. Look with me to Romans chapter 7. Paul is telling us about his own experience, and the book of Romans is the only one that he tells it to. We know that Rome was a place that Paul had not been to by the time he writes this letter. And all the other letters that we have in the New Testament were places that Paul had been and churches that he had started himself. So we have to assume, or I assume anyway, you judge it for yourself. After all, I am just a non-essential worker. But uh, I assume that the things that the Scripture says in the book of Romans are things that he taught to the other churches when he was there. Maybe these were the foundations of the things that he taught that the churches were built and established on. I believe they were. And so this letter to the Romans is not necessarily giving us new information or giving information that Paul didn't share with anybody else. But it is information that he put down in written form. The only time that he put this down in written form to help establish the churches that were started without his personal involvement. 
So in Romans chapter 7, he's identifying that the law was a good thing, but it held them in bondage. I'm going to start with verse 9. Paul said, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the, com and the commandment which was ordained to lie, I found to be death. He's talking about the fact that he was alive unto God before the knowledge of the law came. But when that knowledge came and he saw that he was unable to, to keep the law, then he died. Well, what death is he talking about? He can't be talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. So that tells us that when babies are born into this world, they're alive unto God until they come to the knowledge of right and wrong, good and evil. And then they must make a decision for themselves based on what Jesus has done for us and on our behalf. For sin, verse 11, for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good, talking about the law God gave, was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. That's a confusing way of saying the law was good, but because we didn't have the power or the strength to keep it, then we entered into spiritual death. And folks, that's the way it works for everybody. And there's a reason for it working that way. And that reason is to show us that we need a Savior. It's very important for us to come to the place where we recognize the end of our own strength or our own abilities. And I'm talking about spiritual strength and spiritual abilities. Because if we can keep the law, if we can do that which is right and stand before God with our own righteousness, then we wouldn't need Jesus. But of course we know that's not the case. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do I allow not. Now I'm going to change the wording here a little bit to help make it a little clearer. For that which I want to do is not what I do. For what I want to, that I don't do. But what I hate is what I do. He's talking about keeping the law. He's talking about behavior. If then I do that which I would not, if I do that which I don't want to do, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that doeth, but sin that dwelleth in me. Paul's going to make a, uh, reveal to us that which he understood, came to understand, spiritual truth, so that we can win the same battle that he won. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Paul's revelation is uh, the discovery of man on three dimensions. He is a spirit, he has a soul, and he lives in a body. When Paul talks about I, he's talking about the inner man as opposed to the flesh. So he says, now then it is no more I, the man on the inside that does it, commits sin, but the sin that dwelleth in me. Now in me doesn't mean in his spirit. It means in his flesh. And he clarifies that in verse 18. For I know that in me that is in my flesh. Dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me. I want to do what's right. I will to do what's right. But how to perform that which is good. Or that which I want to do. 
I find not. Paul's saying he doesn't have the power or the strength in and of himself to do right or live righteously. For the good that I would, I do not. The things that I want to do from my heart is not what I catch myself doing. But the evil which I don't want to do, that's what I wind up doing. Now, if I do that which I would not, if my behavior doesn't line up with my desires, my spiritual desires, it is no more I that doeth it, but sin that dwelleth in me. He's saying if I want to do the right thing from the inside, from the inner man, if he wants to do what's right, the inner man is me, the real me. So the sin that I wind up committing is not of my spirit. It's not of me, the real me on the inside, the inner man. But rather it's my flesh that was sold under sin. Verse 21. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Now folks, notice he says this is a law. It's a law and as much as you and I might like to be free from it, it's this way and it's always going to be this way. There's always going to be the, the, the accusation of the enemy. The attempts of the enemy to deceive us into thinking we're not righteous because of the unrighteous things that we do. But Paul found the secret. He found the difference. He made the distinction between the man on the inside that's been born again and made righteous by the blood of Jesus and the man on the outside. But it's a law. It's always going to be here. That desire for our, uh, of our flesh to do what's sinful and what's wrong, that's always going to be there. We can't get so spiritual that that temptation, at least the temptation to be under condemnation is there. And that's the battle we have to fight. That's the battle we have to win. So he says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I, he's talking about the man on the inside, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. He's saying the inward man always wants to do right. The inward man always wants to please God. The inward man always wants to behave righteously as we were born into, the righteousness that we were born into. So I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law. He says it's a law. I see another law in my members or in my flesh, warring against the law of my mind. Now, the word mind is, uh, is talking about the inward man. I, I would have preferred him to use the word spirit. But the word mind literally means understanding. But you can clearly see he's talking about the contrast between the man on the inside and the man on the outside. He's clearly talking about the difference between the spirit of man and the flesh of man. He's clearly talking about the desire of the inward man, the spirit man who always wants to do good, who always wants to do right. And the reason he always wants to do good and always do right is because he's been recreated into righteousness by the blood of Jesus. So he's saying the inward man is righteous and always wants to perform acts of righteousness. He wants to live righteously. But there's another law at work too. That law which is in my members, warring against the law of my mind or my understanding, the inward man, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that with the mind or the understanding, the inner man, I myself, notice he calls the inward man him, the real him, 
I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. That brings us to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Paul didn't write this in chapter and verse. He's talking about the same things that he was talking about previously. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Remember, he just said, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? What's he talking about? He's talking about the body, the law of sin that's in his members. Who's going to deliver him from that? He answers in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. The rest of the verse says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Folks, that phrase, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit, is not in the original transcript. It is there in, in what we know of as, chat, as uh, verse 4. But the translators couldn't accept, apparently they couldn't accept the truth that Paul was conveying by the Holy Ghost. Because the Holy Ghost is telling Paul to write to the church saying, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. In other words, those who have made Jesus the Lord of their lives, those that have been born again, those that have been made righteous, new creatures in him, there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Now, folks, that revelation is what separated Paul and elevated him to the place that God was able to use him in the mighty way that he did. There is therefore now no condemnation. People that don't come to the place where they realize that there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, even if they uh, have sin from their flesh, people that don't come to that realization are never, will never be used of God in any significant way whatsoever. And I'm not talking about being used in ministry. I'm talking about being used in any and every way that there is. It's, a, it's a, a incumbent upon us to meditate in the Word of God, to realize what the Bible says about the work that Jesus has done for us and in us. It's absolutely an absolute must that we come to the place to realize that there is no and never will be any condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus. Not because we conquered the flesh. Not because we did something on our own. But because we accepted what Jesus did on our behalf. Verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now what does it mean to be free from the law of sin and death? It means to be free from the condemnation of the enemy. It doesn't mean that you're going to be free from your flesh ever desiring to sin. It doesn't mean that you're ever going to be free from your flesh saying, oh, let's don't do that spiritual stuff. Let's do what we want. That's a law. That law will always be in effect. That sin will always be in our members. Now, hopefully we grow and mature in the things of God to the point where we gain greater control over our bodies. But that desire to sin, that desire to do wrong is always going to be in our flesh. Even if we come to the place where we conquer it completely. What that means is we will conquer the desire. But the desire will still be there. So notice he says the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free. From the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do. In that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin condemned sin in the flesh that's why there's no condemnation the condemnation is placed on the sin that's in your flesh not on you there's never a condemnation 
Never any condemnation of any type from God concerning you or your lifestyle. Now, some people hear this and they think, well, this is great. I can just run off to the deep end here and live any way I want to and know that I'm eternally secure. Well, folks, those, that are, those people that have been born again and people that know that they've been made righteous and people that want to please God, they don't want to live like that. They want to come to the place of understanding so that the power in them can lift them and elevate them to behaving the way that Jesus has provided for us, a means for us to live. So God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemn sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit now he'll go on to say you are not in the flesh but you are in the spirit if you've made Jesus the Lord of your life so there's no condemnation to us because we've been born into the family of God we've been born into the family of God let me show you one other scripture in James chapter 5 Verse 15 talks about the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Verse 14 talks about if any is, is there any sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church. Verse 16, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. If only we could find one of those righteous men. Look at the example that's given to us in verse 17. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. Well, folks, if you remember the story of Elijah, he had this great victory over the prophets of Baal, the 450 prophets of Baal. You remember they went up into the mountain and they had a contest. Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal saying, let's go up to the mountain. We'll offer a sacrifice. You to your God, me to my God, and the God that answers by fire will let him be God. Well, to cut the story short, God's the one that answered by fire, and Elijah slew, personally, slew 450 prophets of Baal that day. Well, those prophets were in the service of the queen. And when she heard that, she said, I'll do the same thing to Elijah by this time tomorrow, if I can find him. Elijah hears that and starts running up into the mountain. After being the great man of faith and power and displaying God's power upon the sacrifice, now he's running from the queen. He gets up into the mountain and he sits down and he has a little bit of a pity party. He says, God, I'm the only one left. Just let me die. Well, if Elijah really wanted to die, he could have stayed where he was down below and, and Jezebel would have taken care of that for him. He didn't mean, Lord, I want to die any more than you and I mean it when we've said it in foolish situations. God takes care of him. God feeds him. An angel appears and, and gives him food to, to strengthen him. God talks to him. He tells him about the work that he has for him to do and the work that Elisha has and to anoint Elisha and so forth. Well, if you look at Elijah and the way he's afraid and the purpose for him running up into the mountain, he reminds us a lot of ourselves, I think, doesn't he? 
There are times where we have little pity parties because things don't go our way too. And that's the man that James by the Holy Ghost uses as an example of a righteous man. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. Well, if he's subject to like passions, that means he's subject to the same fears. That means he's subject to the same emotions. That means he sometimes feels inadequate just like we do or did. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. God used him in a great and mighty way. Even though he was just as emotionally driven, just as subject to fears as you and I, thank God the Bible tells us what to do about it when we are encroached upon by fears and emotions that don't line up with the word. But he was just as human as you and I. Paul tells us how to defeat this, how to win this inner struggle. How to come to the place where we know God can and will use us. Not because we're perfected or made perfect in the flesh. But because we recognize what Jesus has done. And recognize that we are now governed by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And that spirit has, that law rather, has made us free from the law of sin and death. You're just as free as Paul is. You're just as free as Elijah was. Elijah had a, a, a shadow of it, but we've got the real thing. Elijah had righteousness imputed to him. We've been made the righteousness of God in Christ. There's nothing that we can't do. There's no, no situation, no problem that's too great for the man or the woman who know who they are in Christ and know the power of God that resides in them. Folks, I don't know what's going to happen with this church, I mean with the virus lockdown and when we can go back to church and all that kind of stuff. I, I, personally, I don't believe that the, the government has the right to keep us out of church even now. But there are a lot of things that are being bantered about and, and discussed about when things are going to go back to normal and what will normal look like at that point in time and so forth. And I can tell you this, the more that the government tries to clamp down on churches, the more the church will go out into the streets and operate in the streets and the greater the name of Jesus will be magnified and seen among people, not people that are coming to church to sit inside the four walls, whether it be 10 at a time or 50 at a time or whatever. But this thing has forced the church out of the church buildings and into the streets. And if we'll take the word of God, do what the word of God tells us to do, speak the name of Jesus, invoke the name of Jesus as we lay hands on the sick and so forth, we'll see an explosion of revival like we've never seen before. I'm not too concerned about not being able to meet together in these, well, having to keep going with the streaming services. I'm not too concerned about that because I know that we've been equipped with the Word of God. I know that we're in a place where God can and does speak to us. And my prayer has not been, Lord, bring us back into the building, but rather, Lord, send us out into the streets. There's great things ahead.
And just as God used Samson when he might not fit our model of what a righteous person looks like, God will use you and me too. Let's pray. Father, we magnify you. We bless your holy name. We thank you for manifesting your glory in these last days. Lord, you said you'd shake all nations and the desire of all nations should come. The sons of God will be made manifest. You said the silver and gold is yours and you said that your glory will be greater on this last day, church, than it was even earlier in the book of Acts. You said, Lord, that this would be a place of peace. So I thank you that everyone under the sound of my voice walks and lives in the peace of God. I thank you, Father, for taking care of us. I thank you for bringing people across our paths that we can share the good news of Jesus with and demonstrate the healing power of God as we lay hands on the sick, the delivering power of God as we minister to them, Lord, make us your church, a church that meets the needs of people. We thank you for the things that you've given us, Father. Specifically, we thank you for your word, which has equipped us. Now bring us across people's paths that we can demonstrate the power of God to them. In Jesus' precious name, amen. God bless you folks. Thanks for being with us. Have a great week.